And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. There it is. The results of last night's unboxing, which you can see over at twitch.tv slash sci-fi for me. We're doing our best to uh, boost the numbers over there if any of you want to uh, take a look at that. Two hours, and it looks like I've got almost a full run of Eric Son of Thunder from DC Comics. I'm very excited about that. Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us. The comments are open. The live chat's open. You can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. We're on all the socials, and we have a newsletter that you can sign up for. Just sent one out yesterday. And if you prefer podcast form, we're on all of those as well. iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Double Twists, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Listen Notes. And it is International Women's Day. And I will officially say I like women. I married one. She's actually going to be running the show on Wednesday. I'm going to be out Wednesday through the rest of the week. And then on Thursday, SB the Every Fairy will be here for a fairy piece session, answering your questions with questionable life advice. And we've got a new H2O tonight. And uh, all right, all of my all of my busy work is out of the way so now we can actually get to what we're supposed to be talking about today this is something that i've been looking forward to for a while and let me start by introducing david weber and chris kennedy they are both here to talk about a new book they've got out welcome gentlemen hi and jason good to be here david i think i need to start with an apology to you because we did an interview. I don't know if you're going to remember this or not. We did an interview at OzFest 4, I believe it was, way back in the day. This probably would have been about 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And we did an interview. You consented to uh, a request for about 10 or 15 minutes by giving me a 45-minute interview <laughs> with, with, with a migraine, no less. While you were waiting to to get to your next panel, we sat in the we sat in the in the uh, common area there at the hotel and taped this interview. And as we wrapped up, and I'm packing up my gear, I realized that I didn't have the right microphone on. So I ended up having to do transcriptions, and those interviews became a set of three articles over on our dot com. And I feel I I felt so bad that the video was unusable. I was like, oh, this would have been such a great video. Um, but yeah. I ended up doing doing three. <laughs> but uh, but an apology for the format not exactly going to spec, but also uh, a note of appreciation because you were very gracious with your time at that point. And uh, we're glad to have you back. And, we're- and, and David, if you're still waiting for that interview to show up, <laughs> You can stop waiting. It's, yeah, okay, I will. I it's will. actually, I it's actually, we posted it, and I'll, uh, I'll put links in the, um, in the show notes once, once we get done. It was a very good interview. I was very happy with it, and uh, despite my technical issues, which happen every now and again, we have gremlins. But anyway, okay, so now we have uh, both David and. Chris Kennedy here, and Chris we've talked with as well in the past about his work, and the two of you are collaborating on a sequel to this book, which I thought I had posted a review on, but I I can't find it. Out of the Dark is the first book in this series. Mm -hmm. Now, you may know David as the author of the Honor Harrington books. Chris, of course, is not only an author, but also the publisher over at Chris Kennedy Publishing. And this book is not exactly what I expected it to be when I first read it because, okay, Alien Invasion and the preliminary press made absolutely no mention that I can recall of the other part of the story as far as who resists the aliens. And when those guys showed up, I thought, 
Hang on. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> I, I think there was a reference in there to, but there's something they don't know, you know, about the planet they're invading, something like that. Right, and it became one of those, one of those things. Where like, okay, the humans are resisting. He's in the, he's in the, he's in Eastern Europe. Hold on, wait a minute. There, there are vampires in this in this book. <laughs> And it threw me mainly because David Weber doesn't write vampires. And, you know, because I'm so used to the military science fiction mm -hmm. that some of the more fantastical things that are in these books, I, I wasn't expecting from you. And it threw me. But it was a it was a pleasant surprise. It wasn't something where I looked at well, it and go, oh, what is he doing? Well, I do. I do do fantasy. And uh, actually, one of my very first um, military science fiction novels, Path of the Fury, uh, which is my wife's favorite book. It's now uh, in Fury Born because I did uh, the prequel to it and we bound it in one set of covers. But uh, it combines a uh, very high-tech environment uh, with the last surviving Greek Fury. So I have perpetrated this particular offense before. Um, and I have to say that what happened here to create the novel was that I did a short story for an anthology that Tor published. Um, and the anthology was basically the portion of the book dealing with Stephen Buczewski and the events happening in, in the Balkans mm -hmm. uh, with none of what was going on anywhere else in the world. And Tom Doherty really, really liked the short story. So he said, you have to expand it into a novel. And I think possibly... Tor expected me to expand it off the back end after Vlad was established as a character and so forth. But it seemed to me that if I was going to turn it into a novel, it needed to encompass more than just Stephen and the Balkans. So I put it onto the front. And I think that's one reason why it comes as as much of a surprise as it does. I mean, from the moment that you meet Vlad, I'm dropping clues. I mean, who sneaks up in the woods on basically a, a force recon Marine who is about to throw hand grenades to, to begin an ambush without his even noticing and leans down in his ear and says, is this a good idea? I mean, you know, there's something a little off about him uh, to begin with. Well, and I started um, to get that feeling, that sense of something being a little off when when all of that started to happen. I thought, no, nah, he's he's not doing what I think he's doing. It, he's he? not going to go he's there. He's not. No, no, not, he's not, not going to go there. Oh, not Dave. <laughs> and then he did. I'm with well, one of the things also that um, happened when I expanded the the uh, the short story is that in the original short story, Vlad was Vlad. I mean, he still is, but mm -hmm. he, he genuinely was exactly what everybody thinks he is. Um, and in, uh, into the light, the, the sequel to out of the dark, uh, which I just, I don't know, happen to have a copy of here, <laughs> um, is, um, you, you, you find out that Vlad's not quite what we think he is because he's not quite what he thinks he is. Um, I'll just leave it at that for people who haven't uh, read the book. Um, but that was, that was baked into my thinking from the time that I expanded it into a novel. Um, they're just, it's been a while since I did the first book and there wasn't a good place in it to begin hinting at the the reveal that we get to in the second book uh, because there's not enough background on him or the technology available to the hegemony and so forth. Okay. Now, when you say it's been a while since you did the first book, the first book came out in 2010. <laughs> That's more than a while. <laughs> well, it's, it's, well it's, and see, I, I want to I jump in there. We, we were having dinner one time and I said, you know, David, I, I really like this book, but, you know, vampires. And he said, oh, but they're not vampires. And I went, tell me more. <laughs> he said, oh, well, you know, I, I will eventually. And, uh, you know, I'm like, In my copious free time. 11 years. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the problem. OK, I have. I have what's a good problem for a writer to have, which is more stories than I have time to tell 
rather than contracts I have to fill and no idea what to put in them. Right. Okay. And I know it can be frustrating for the readers. I, I understand that. But I think that most writers, I at least, have to go and do what's moving for them at that time. Where they're where they're really invested at that moment. If we try to push it in something else, because well, it's been a while since we did a book in that ser- in that series, the book suffers. It's yeah. it's not it's not it, our it it's not our best work. Yeah, right. It absolutely shows. Yeah, um, and I've had right, right this minute. I mean, I feel really bad about my Safehold series with Tor uh, because it's been three years, I think, since the last release in that one. I'm over a, I'm almost two years past due and handing in the manuscript. But there have been some health issues and other things that came along, right? Concussions, right. COVID, little things like that. And and you're relatively fully recovered from from the, your bout or, or you're still kind of and, getting back to how well I'm still I'm still having some issues where I just sort of like about four o'clock I hit a wall. And, the, um, and then if I sit down and like nap or whatever for an hour or two, I'm good to go. Yeah. Um, I think I'm a little more susceptible to things like the common cold that are running around because I get a cold and I just can't seem to kick it. From the writing perspective, the biggest problem has been, I think it's also an energy thing, is that until very recently, I haven't been able to maintain focus while I'm writing. Yeah. I can edit. I can do. Uh, I can do individual scenes work great for. Were working great for me, but then I'd sit there and realize that at the end of the scene, I had no idea what came next. And that's not the way it works when you're writing successful. At the end of a scene, you know who's going to say something. You know what's going to happen to kick the next one off. And I was producing these discrete packets that I couldn't seem to connect to what came next. Um, I was having an awful time with a short story for an anthology, World Breakers, uh, that that Bain is doing. Um, And I kept writing stuff and then throwing it away because it was no good. It was no good. It was no good. And Sharon said, why don't you go ahead and finish the story and send it to Tony and let her decide whether or not it's <laughs> it's good? And I said, okay, fine. And I sent it to Tony and I sent it to Tony Daniel. And I said, I said, guys, you know, I'm not really satisfied with this. What do you think? And they're, oh, it works great. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> you know. Um, and that and, would be and that would be Tony Daniel and Tony Weisskopf over at Band, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, I did say Tony. Tony I and Tony Y. Right. Fondly refer to them. Um, but um, and actually, when I think about it, Tony Y has a Y chromosome, so it works. Um, <laughs> but uh, the uh, I think that that particular dam may have broken in the last three or four days. Um, I've been able to put some stuff together that uh, I hadn't been able to deal with. And uh, Jacob Polo and I, uh, just Sunday, uh, turned in the uh, manuscript on the third of the Gordian Protocol Universe novels, which I think is very good and very much a change of pace. But So things are are moving. it's just been really frustrating for me to the 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 the, the gradualism right with which things have have come back especially following on the heels of the concussion down in Atlanta a few years ago because that was such a gradual process and i really had just gotten stuff back together again you know things were going good and <laughs> yeah. so i'm like Okay, fine. I'm. I understand fate. I'm just your round bottom doll. Keep it up. You know, I'll be good. Yeah. So, Chris, let me bring you in here while uh, while David tilts his camera down a little bit. So, uh, Chris, <laughs> when when we talk about when when David talks about all of this logjam of the of the workload. Uh, you look at the Honor Harrington stuff. He's got collaborations with people like Eric Flint and and such. And now here you are um, coming in to collaborate on this one. How did that come about where the two of you started working together on this sequel? Was that? He pulled a gun on me. 
<laughs> yeah. well, David, you're going to demonetize you know, I, my I channel. I started that. You know, I said, hey, I want to I want to uh, know more about this. And, and he said, well, you know, I, I kind of don't have time now. I've got this and that and, you know, all of these, all of these other things. And um, I said, well, shoot, I'll, I'll help. Um, and and he, you know, uh, I don't want to say unwisely took me on. Um <laughs> You know, he graciously, you know, allowed me to to come into his universe and um, hopefully, uh, you know, provide a little something there, a little different perspective, and and um, try and try and help bring this to the the readers a little faster than it might have been otherwise, um, which you know was also just uh, tremendously um, wonderful for me to get to work with David, uh, who's always been one of my favorite authors. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and he pays dude, me well to say that too. So eventually, though, Sharon is going to see this, okay? And she is <laughs> going to give you so much grief for that whole head inflating thing that you just did. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. it is true. She'll tell Sheila on you. Yeah. Oh, they're going well, to recap. So him. I mean, you know, I, I've hated David since the day that I first <laughs> read him, and and when I got to the vampire part in the first book, I threw the book across the room. Back. All right. Good. Okay. We're we're good. And that that part's true. <laughs> you did well, what? Yep. I I really did. I've I've I got that response from quite a few people. <laughs> I I don't know that I've ever thrown a book besides that, but I went vampires. <laughs> and then I went and picked it up and read the rest of it anyway because I couldn't help it. Well, I, I I think the only other thing I've done that has evoked quite that response was when people realized that Robert S. Pierre was going to be the chairman of the Committee of Public Safety and sign everything, Rob S. Pierre. <laughs> and they were like, you, you did. You <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I did. <laughs> I, I think I was probably three or four times reading those books before I realized what you had done there. And I thought, ah, that was rather clever. I see what you did. <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the things, okay, I've been, I sold the first novel in 89. So I've been doing this for 30 years now. Um, it doesn't seem that long to me when I look back at it because I've been in the middle of it. But I mean, seriously, I've been doing this for 30 years. And in 30 years, I've learned a few things. I've acquired a few skills. Um, and one of the um one of the finest people i the finest men i ever knew uh as well as a wonderful writer was roger zelazny um and zelazny was always very accessible to the new kids uh when when they came along and i was fortunate enough that he became a friend of mine um and I think I probably would have felt this way anyway, but I think that meeting him made me more consciously aware of what Heinlein calls paying forward. Um, and I won't, I won't work with somebody who I think will result in our not producing good work. Okay. Sure. Uh, I won't work with somebody if I don't think that the finished product is going to be at least as good as either of us would have done alone. Okay. Um, blended voice is often stronger, but the final product has to be at least as good as what either of us would have done alone. Uh, and I won't work with somebody just to increase output. But if I can find somebody who I think is um, a, a, a good storyteller like Chris or Jacob or Joel Presby or two or three other people I can think of off the top of my head. And if I can, number one, share with them some of those perishable skill sets that I've acquired, because when I'm gone, they're gone. Uh, if I can help somebody acquire some of them a little faster, uh, a mm -hmm. little earlier, that's worthwhile. But it's also worthwhile to give these good writers a broader platform, if I can. 
Um, and it took me quite a while to accept that, well, I don't know, working with, working with me might get them to more readers because I really genuinely don't usually sit down and think about it in, in those terms. It's just, it's what I do. It's, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it is true, I guess. Uh, and most often, uh, like with, uh, with Into the Light, uh, it works out well. It satisfies my expectations. There have been a couple of occasions where it was kind of like, well, okay, mm, you know, um, but. Um, those, are, those are learning experiences. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but I, I'm, I'm not as comfortable working with other writers as, say, Eric Flint. Okay, I think that's because Eric is that socialist commie guy. You know, he's, <laughs> he's used to communal projects. You know, um, but he's also and he's just darn good at it. Too. He's very, very good at it. He can keep all those balls in the air uh, in remarkable fashion. Chris, kind of with the Four Horsemen and whatnot, is looking at a similar situation. Um, I'm too hands-on for that. Okay, I can work with 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 individual writers on individual series, but I don't think that I would be comfortable at all trying to stage manage a huge shared universe. We only have 61 books and about 15 authors. <laughs> well, show off. I mean, slacker, you know, kind of thing. But it, it, it's it's a. Although, David, you are kind of doing that a little bit, maybe not to that scale, but with the Honor Harrington series, because you have multiple tracks. You have the stuff that you write, and then you have the collaborations on the other, the, you know, the Tort series and, and, and that yeah. front. So you're kind of doing that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I know. But what I'm saying is that in each of those series or subseries, I think of myself as working with one co-writer at a time. Okay. And I'm not trying to balance, for example, the, the closest I've got to contemporaneous separate series is the star is the Manticore ascendant with Tim Zahn. Mm -hmm. And we're only going to do, I think two more books uh, in that one. And that'll wrap that story arc up and the star kingdom books, uh, which are uh, Jay with Jane Linskold. Um, and, um, to a certain extent, those are both more shared universe almost than collaboration, um, in, in a very real way. I mean, in, in the Manticore Ascendant books, it's not just Tim Zahn and me. There's also Tom Pope, uh, who is our anchor and our, our Tim, David, that ain't going to work kind of guy. <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever heard the Harry Chapin bit where he's talking about the Bananas song and the ending on it, he says, and I played the ending for the boys in the band, and my brother Tom said, Harry, it sucks. Okay, Tom is the one who tells us that from, from time to time. So Tom is your um, Gary Kurtz. Yeah, yeah Tom, is, <laughs> Tom is a really, really, really cool guy. He's sort of the, the, the anchor hub for B9, <clears throat> the folks who, who are uh, deeply invested in the honor version who I did House of Steel with. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm too hands-on to do like some authors, some established authors do where they say, okay, here's the story outline. Here's the, here's the universe. Go write the book and bring it back. Right. Um, uh, that that's happened to me on a couple of occasions, uh, because my, my junior partner just did such a slam up job that there wasn't much for me to do except say, boy, you done good. That's really the situation with, uh, the Janus file, the book that Jacob and I just turned in. Uh, he sent me the manuscript and I'm like, okay, I'll go through it, and, you know, make any changes that need to be made. And I was done in like five hours. Okay. And I was like, okay, I have invested many, many minutes <laughs> of my time in this book. Uh, but it just, in this particular case, 
he just nailed it. And I think part of it was that he knew that I was having the issues still with the with the concussion and whatnot. But it's still collaborative because we did the whole plot conferences, we did the storyline, we talked about who the characters had to be and what they had to do. So it's totally it's totally collaborative in that sense. But people need to understand that when they look at this book, they are seeing Jacob's writing. And in Into the Light, there are sections that are me, sections that are Chris. And the sections that are Chris and Into the Light are just as much him as anything that Jacob did in, in the Janus file. Um, it's just that it's a different, it's a different dish. Sure. Um, and usually when I do a collaboration, it's divided by characters or plot strands or whatever. I mean, Chris and I really divided the writing and into the light in large part, uh, between character sets that each of us was, was, was working with. Um, and um, that's the way that I'm more comfortable usually working. Right. Um, well, that was an interesting rabbit hole that I just <laughs> wandered down. You know, yeah. it's an hour-long show. Rabbit holes are, are nothing <laughs> unusual in this. Chris, let me ask you, in terms of the collaboration, when you guys are sitting there and you're kicking ideas back and forth, is there a certain amount of... I don't want to say trepidation, but the idea of playing in someone else's sandbox. I mean, you have your own that you've done over there with, with the stuff that you do, and now you're coming into David's world uh, with with this book. Is there, it, is there a difference in how you approach something like that because you don't have complete ownership of the, of the universe? Well... I think that the the one the biggest thing with this one was that, you know, with uh, most of the other collaborations I've done, I've kind of been more the the senior partner, um, and in this one I'm I'm the definitely the junior partner. So you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I was respectful of his universe, um, you know, because that's that's one of the things where. Um, in the Four Horsemen universe, we, we have um, a lot of different anthologies that we've done. And one of the worst things is, is the publisher or the editor that, you know, some of the new people can come, you know, can do is to come in and, and, and treat the uh, sandbox like a cat treats a sandbox and, and put a great big one right in the middle of it. Um, and, and, and that was not what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I made sure that I, I reread into the light a couple times or uh, out of the dark a couple times so that, you know, I had a, a firm background of, of what had, what had gone on before, um, so that I could come in and, and, and not do that, you know, that I could come in and already knowing, uh, the universe as much as possible. And, you know, we, we talked, um, several times before we did anything. So, um, it was it was really a, an easy uh, transition because David uh, was was very gracious as the host um, and made it easy. And uh, you know, wait till the Sharon, next. Sharon, book. Can, Sharon can slap <laughs> me later. I'm, it is what it is. It, I, I'd be lying if I said other words. I mean, he he was a, a gracious host and he let me play with the vampires. <laughs> well, I, one of the one of the um, things is depending on the collaboration, there's a greater or a lesser degree of pre-planning right. uh, for what you're going to do. There's, there's much more pre-planning in any collaboration, I think, than there is in a solo novel. Without uh, a doubt. Yeah. But in a solo novel, you can go wherever it goes, okay, as long as the editor is willing to write the check at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> in, a, in a collaborative novel, the pieces have to fit. Um, and Chris and I <clears throat> did... Um, conferences while the work was in progress, uh, planning the next handful of, of chapters. And I think that I'm the one who put together the, the working synopsis and it was, I'd like color code, you know, Chris does this chapter, David does that chapter, and this is what happens in that chapter after we had discussed it. Um, 
and a little I've got a little bit of that in the later Honorverse books with myself because they got so extensive that I all of a sudden realized, you know, I got to work out a timeline for how this book plugs into this other book over here in times of chronology and so forth. Um, but um, is that, Chris, does that create a challenge for finding that blended voice in terms of, you know, dividing the work up? Okay, well, Chris writes this and David writes this. And now, now I, you've got I, to I go back think, and do a pass. I don't think it did um, because uh, I, I know David has, has said on numerous occasions that who you are as a writer um, is influenced primarily by who you are as a reader. Um, and I've, I've read an awful lot of David Weber books. Um, and, and the old dude, books. you read the old dude's books. <laughs> Just say it. Okay. I didn't say I grew up reading <laughs> David Weber. I specifically did not say that this time, um, but I grew up reading David Weber. So, you know, I have, no, but I've, I've read a lot and, and, you know, I, it, it's not my intention to mimic him by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, to, to use my own voice, but, but my own voice is influenced by, you know, uh, a lot of the reading that I did, um, you know, growing up. Uh, or whatever, yeah. however you want to say it in, in, you know, in, in when I was reading a lot more than I am right now, um, you know, I, I read a lot of David Weber. So I think that it, it fits in um, pretty well. Well, there's, there's, there's actually, whoops, wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I thought I'd muted my microphone. Um, there's, there's more to it than that. Okay. Um, a lot depends on how the work in the book is divided, because what happens is the reader reads the strands, the elements written by one author mm -hmm. in that author's voice. And it's not unless there's a huge disconnect between the styles, between the voices. What happens is when they get to the part of the book that has those characters in it, they expect a shift in voice from the novel as a whole, from the story as a whole. And that's part of the experience for them is moving back and forth between those voices in a way that doesn't jar them because they know subconsciously, whether they've analyzed it or not, that when they hit a scene with Abu Bakr in it, they're more likely to be hearing Chris than me. And so these they, people sound like this. No. Yes, exactly. And so it's, a, it's a narrative voice shift as the POV shifts. The narrative kind voice of. is actually less important, I think, than how you handle dialogue um, okay. and who the characters are. Um, the characters that Chris is working with, I have to understand what he's done with them in terms of character development. And I need to reflect that in their actions and their attitudes and their choices of, of, of how they phrase things when I'm writing the scene, which includes those characters. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking here, Chris, particularly after uh, Abu Bakr has to take over from right. Dvorak. Because right. then we're firmly into one of my plot strands, but Abu Bakr it is has to take center stage, and so I had to be aware of everything that had happened to build him to that point. And Chris started on the platform of the character that I built in the first book, so there's there's it's an interwoven kind of character DNA, and we both both partners have to be aware of that in a workable uh, collaboration. Also, I think one thing that's critical is one writer has to do the final edit. Um, that doesn't mean that he doesn't say to the other author, I did this, does this work for you? Right. But it means that one author does the final fairing where the joints happen uh, between the scenes and maybe tweaks here and there and says, you know what, I think maybe the way that, the way that this character has developed in the book, that's not the way he would have said it here or that's not exactly the way she would have done it there and, and do a little tiny minor tweaking there. But that's one of the things that makes it, makes it. Yeah. And, and, and when we were writing the book, we went back and forth. Typically David would write 
uh, a chapter or two or three, and then I would write a chapter or two or three, and and we always were reading back and forth what the other one was doing. So as we as we went into you know being the the author um, at that point, um, we had just read what he had done, what the other one had done, and and were able to you know have that in the back of our heads as we went forward. So now, what I mean, happens? It, it wasn't written in a vacuum where he did some things and I did some yeah. things and then we kludged them all together. Right. Well, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say another part of what happens when you do that is that the fairing together happens as it's written, right? Sure. Rather than having to be sanded down when you get to it. And I will say this every collaboration, the collaborative mechanism is different. Okay. I don't work with Chris the same way that I work with Jacob or the way that, uh, that Tim and I work together. Uh, it's you have to take the writing uh the writing work habits of of the two writers whoever they are and figure out a way to make them work together right um and and, and you, generally speaking you know okay the 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 it, when you when you step into an existing series okay then you have to do more adaption, adaptation to the to the other guy's style. For example, when I was working with Eric in 1632, uh, I did a couple of novels in that universe early on. Um, I had to accommodate what I was doing and the way that I worked to the way that he worked in those books because it was his universe. Right. Okay. And it's kind of the same thing when he comes over to mine. Um, we do tend, Eric and I do tend to write, um, elements more in isolation from one another and then fuse them together. Whoever the senior editor is takes the, 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 the two parts and, and puts them together at the end of the day. Uh, I'm expecting a manuscript from him very shortly. Uh, that will be the, um, the next in the, uh, Crown of Slaves series um, and come immediately after um, Uncompromising Honor. But, uh, you know, I, the way that we work is that until I get his, I can't do mine. Right. If you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. So what happens when there's a major disagreement on plot or an element or, you know, I really think it should go this way or I, and, and the other guy says, the, no, the I senior really think... author has 51% of the vote. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that we had any um, no, we, we significant disagreement. Now what, what happens sometimes is like, and I, I can't remember for sure. But I think this probably happened with Chris and me because it usually happens somewhere is my junior author wants to go somewhere that I wasn't going. And I have an ooh, shiny moment. Ah, um, we and, did have a couple of those. And, and then we suddenly were, 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 were incorporating more stuff than was in my original uh, concept. Um, and um, I think those moments, generally speaking, strengthen the, the, the story and, and the structure. But... I try, not always successfully, but I try to make it a policy if I've invited someone in to play in my universe uh, to give them free reign as long as they don't step on the existing universe. Sure. If you look at the anthologies in the Honor Harrington series, um, I basically restricted myself to telling them whether or not what they wanted to do would work uh, and for when they wanted to do it. And and whether or not the technology would let them do what they would were going to do, and then they went off and did it. And quite a lot of what was done in those stories was incorporated into the Honorverse canon, into into the spine uh, of the series. Um, and I think that it strengthened that literary universe <laughs> considerably. So I think I think that not listening to your writing partners whether you're senior partner, junior partner, whatever. I think it's a really, really big mistake no. to not listen. 
So speaking of canon, we, we we had we had several of those synchronicity moments where <laughs> you know the I'd I'd say something and he'd go oh wow or or he'd say something and I'd go oh wow um, and and the you know the it it became more than the sum of the parts because we had the other to play things off of. That's what uh, it's supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And and I I thought it totally worked. So, so David, I don't know. Totally. You're still wrong about (laughs) (laughs) David. Speaking of canon, let me ask you this. Will the Honor Harrington movie incorporate all of the book canon or is it going to be on its own by itself? Well, I don't know if it's even going to happen. (laughs) Um, And there's no way in the world that they could incorporate um, all of it. I mean, when you think about it, the, the, the last movie I can think of that really incorporated the entire book and actually used significant portions of dialogue from the original book was the, I think, 1937 Stuart Whitman Prisoner of Zinda. <laughs> and Prisoner of Zinda is like 60,000 words. Yeah. Okay. Um, and when you've got a 200,000 word novel, <clears throat> there is no way in the world that a, that a screenwriter can incorporate everything from that book into a movie that's less than nine and a half hours long. Right. Much less um, an anthology dealing with various pieces here and there and in, exactly. in different yeah. times. And yeah. That's why I, I am firmly convinced <clears throat> that Honor Harrington would work better as a TV series than as a movie. Sure. I can see that. Um, and, um, you know, we've got a couple of people who are who are looking at that. But, you know, the COVID has just really hammered you know, Hollywood, yeah. uh, just like everybody else. I mean, when you look at all the established shows that are still on hiatus or just now starting to resume uh, production, um, it's uh, the, <clears throat> the whole COVID thing, aside from the time that I spent actually having it, um, <laughs> has been a lot more of an inconvenience than a disaster for me. Mm-hmm. I sit in my office. I work with my computer. Um, I don't have to, you know, interact with a whole bunch of people physically for what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. So all the various lockdowns and shutdowns <clears throat> were an inconvenience for me, but they weren't the kind of dire problem they were for hourly wage earners whose businesses were suddenly listed as non-essential and that kind of thing. Right. Um, and I think that writers as a class are fortunate in that respect basically all the time but especially at a moment like this uh now the drawback of course is that you're on your own if the muse suddenly fails you uh you can't call in and say yo dale i'm not feeling too well today could you take the meeting with you know what i'm saying (laughs) here you know yeah, so, the uh, if if you were to you know tune in and look at me on any given day, this is pretty much what you'd see. You know, this is the office, and this is where I am. You know, I didn't I didn't go somewhere different for this. You know, this was where I was before COVID. This is where I was during COVID. You know, so you hadn't been there very long before COVID, though. Because well, yeah, I actually, I actually moved here during COVID, so it <laughs> yeah. did. The, the view changed a little, um, you know, now, now I'm looking out at the water where, you know, before I was looking out at uh, the house across the street. Right. Well, and, and we've had, we've had a similar experience here. I mean, my, my wife has been able to work from home, uh, which she did off and on before all of this hit. Now she's just doing it all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm here in my office all the time as, as I was pre lockdown. But in the bunker, in the bunker. And and part of that, you know, my day job as a freelance media guy, um, when all of this happened, I was working for ESPN for their Big 12 tournament coverage. And then that shut down. And now here we are you know, a year later. And at the end of this week, I'm going back to the Big 12 tournament. And it's going to be one of those really surreal things, I'm sure, because. Yeah. This is where it all started yeah. in terms of, yeah. you know, this is where things started to shut down was, was that week. And yeah. so it's a, it's an odd, it's an odd feeling of expectation going over there because I'm like, well, do I really want to go over there or not? But 
Yeah, yeah well, we were two weeks from uh, the the fantasy convention last year, which is you know right now, and and you know we we're all said, okay, it's still going to happen, it's still going to happen, and it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dragon Con, Dragon Con didn't announce it shut down until, and it's like fifty, sixty thousand people didn't announce it shut down until two weeks, I think maybe before, before the con. And I think in their case, they were waiting because they needed it to be an official government decree. You can't do this. Right. Because otherwise budget, you know, financially it would have been ruinous for them to forfeit all of their, their, their deposits. Right. And, and I remember seeing uh, a number of discussions about force majeure clauses throughout that, that time period where people were like, well, why don't they announce? Why don't they make a decision? And there was like, well, they can't yet. And we started covering, uh, we started actually putting out reports about cancellations and reschedules on March 15th of last year. And it's gone, pretty much nonstop the entire year and things are still canceling and yeah. rescheduling and postponing yeah. as, as we go through uh, 2021. So, you know, yeah. this whole sense of getting back to normal, I think is still going to take a lot of time. Well, Chris, Chris mentioned fantasy. <clears throat> fantasy was scheduled for March again this year and they have now moved it, I think to May. Yep. Um, and uh, they're still hoping to, but in this case, it was because the restaurant wasn't going to be open and the venues yeah. <laughs> off in a corner somewhere. And if the restaurant's not open, everybody would starve or the guests would be eating each other by, <laughs> by the end of the weekend. It would be like Donner Khan, you know, <laughs> there, all over. I was about to say, that's a, oh, that's a that's completely so different bad. convention. Well, there is a, there is, there, there, there is a Donner Khan. Oh, is there? Um, well, okay. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> the, they, they got snowed in in Colorado one year. And they ah. referred to themselves as Donner Con. <laughs> you know, well, hopefully they didn't start eating oh, each other. Yeah. Was that was that a World Con? I don't where think that so. happened. I don't think so. No, um, been, I have to. I have to say one of the things that Thirty Years of Selling Books does is the conventions begin blurring. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you 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 remember, man. I had a really great time at that con. When was it? Where was it? Was that the one in? In Saskatchewan or the one in Miami, uh, you know, similar cities, <laughs> <laughs> right? Can't tell them apart. Yeah. yeah. So, what's next for the two of you? Where, uh, David? You said you're waiting for a manuscript from Eric, I think, on on the on the honor verse. Chris, what are you? Uh, what have you got brewing next? Uh, I am going to finish off uh, my uh, my personal series, which is the Theogony. Um, which has uh, 10 books in it. Uh, I'm going to kick off the, the last one. I've got about halfway through it, and that'll end that series. Um, you know, after, uh, actually, it was the, the first series I ever started back in 2013. So, um, you know, basically eight years to, to bring that to a close. Looking, looking forward to that, although it's kind of bittersweet. You know, you, you've had something that long, and then to end it, oh, well. Um, and then looking forward to uh, working with David again on uh, the third book of this series um, once once he's uh, back functioning again. Well, I've got I've got um, <clears throat> the collaboration with Eric. I have an anthology that I realized got dropped years ago that I have all the components for from the other authors. I mean, they've been paid their delivery payments, but the book's been, just been sitting here. I got to get it up and running. I have to have story conferences with Chris uh, and with Richard Fox, although Richard and I are kind of up and running on the sequel to our collaborative novel, uh, Governor, uh, which is actually set in the uh, Inferior Born universe, but several hundred years before those novels. Um, Joel Presby and I have to discuss the sequel to um, The Road to Hell uh, in the Multiverse series. Um, and somewhere in there, in my copious free time, um, I have to write the, uh, the safe hold book that's been hanging fire, um, especially <laughs> since that book ended with a cliffhanger, <clears throat> which I need to kind of get them off the cliff of. Sure. Um, so I've got a lot <laughs> uh, going on. And that's part of the reason that 
it's difficult to project exactly when any given book is going to get finished and and hit the hit the um, hit the shelves electronic and and brick and mortar right well and you're not the only one who's dealt with that kind of thing i mean we we constantly hear about george rr R. martin never finishing you know that next book and you know david gerald people are saying when when are we going to get that next tour book and and everybody has got so many different irons in the fire it seems like that's kind of a common a common challenge how do you prioritize which you, what one comes next is it just it just depending on what rolls in next is the one you go with it depends in part especially in collaborations on your collaborators schedule yeah what's happening in their worlds uh, it depends in part on <clears throat> which series you have that's at a resting point. Uh, for example, uh, Mutineer's Moon, uh, which was my first solo novel to come out, I think. Um, there are three books in that series, and I have at least three more planned. But I haven't touched it in 15, 20 <laughs> years. Uh, because where it is will work if I never get back to writing another book in the series. Right. If you see what I'm saying. Um, I will say that I turned 69 this year. Um, and uh, as a consequence, I have become aware of the fact that I do not have infinite time in which to wrap up uh, all of these series that I have running around. Um, so I am trying hard uh, to either get them all to a resolution point, even if it's not the final resolution point that I have planned for the, for the storyline. Um, or in some cases I am working hard to find another writer who I think could wrap up, who I could trust to wrap up uh, the series if I'm not there to do it. Mm -hmm. um, Annie McCaffrey uh, brought uh, brought Todd in uh, on on the Pern novels right. uh, at a fairly at at a stage in her career when I know that she must have been thinking much the same things that I'm thinking now. Um, there have been other instances in which that has succeeded. There have been other instances in which it has failed, um, but. I think that it is wrong for readers to say, well, the author owes me thus and such resolution right. for this series. Um, but I don't think it's totally wrong. <clears throat> um, I think that authors, storytellers, do assume an obligation to bring the storytelling session to a satisfactory close even if they are not able to bring the entire story to a successful close, if that makes, if that makes sense. It does. I think that's yeah. fair. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. I don't want to die in medias res, you know, it's, 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 I want the, the, and <clears throat> there's going to be a time and it's not as far away as it used to be when I realize that I'm no longer doing my best work. Right. Um, and when that happens, I want to retire gracefully from the lists. Okay. I'll go on writing as long uh, you know, until dementia stops me. Um, but there's a point at which I'll be writing again, just for myself, the way that I was before I was published the first time rather than for other readers. Um, it brings to mind, uh, the Tom Clancy novels. Because you know, they go for a long while, and it's just it's just Clancy. Yeah. And then in some of his side side projects, uh, he started bringing in collaborators, and now there are other people writing in the Jack Ryan universe. And I have to say that, in my opinion, and it may be because of how much I really liked Clancy and his writing voice, I don't think it's worked as well. Yeah, I don't think it has, as I don't think it has, it has in yeah. other cases. I think that I think that uh, Webb Griffin handed off to his son in terms of writing voice and writing style much better 
than happened in in the in the Clancy verse, um, and I hate that. But you know, then you can always if you if you really really want to talk about something that is a total abortion compared to the original books, we can always discuss the born identity. Um, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to say, David, when 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 I first started reading the the honor books, uh, one thing that struck me with with the length and the complexity, I thought, this is the Tom Clancy of science fiction. I mean, your your plots are so you know intricate and and I don't want to say convoluted because they make sense. Uh, but they're so detailed, and you have these little moments that don't feel like they're connected to anything until they are. And then you you have those those you know light bulb moments, and it's the same with Clancy. You know, he'll have a scene where somebody sneezes, and then six you know, six chapters later, where you the nuclear power plant is about to explode. It, it, it's that you know butterfly effect type of thing. And it's always struck me how similar your styles are in in terms of the the amount of detail in your plots. I, I I take that as a as a compliment, but I think what it is is that Clancy and I both are world builders. Okay, now you can you, I know people who can build these wonderful worlds and then write Drek set in those worlds mm-hmm. okay and i know people who write wonderful stuff and you get to the end of the story and realize that he hasn't told you a damn thing about the world in which it's set uh some of uh keith Lawmer's bolo novels uh bolo stories are that way uh jack vance you, you know you could read the entire jack vance novel and realize that he gave you four paragraphs describing the world around the characters in the entire book yeah. But it didn't matter because of the way that he, that was his writing style. That was his writing voice. That was how he told stories. Um, and I think that for me, I'm a historian by training. I use a lot of historical building blocks when I build a universe, although I tend to kind of kick the toy box over on the floor and then assemble the blocks randomly to, to give me what I want. Um, but I think that the fact that I'm a historian informs my understanding of how events are going to happen in the universe once I set them in motion. Right. And that helps a lot when you're, when you're looking at the plot of the story. Now, characterization is separate from plot. Okay. They're connected, but it's separate. The, 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 the characters help build the plot because the character that you've established determines what that character what that character will do next right given a problem okay but it's such a complex fusion uh of elements that trying to break it down to isolate it into why this part works to do that and that part works to do the other is always chancy I've had people walk up to me at cons and say, you know, I really liked what you did so-and-so. And the reason you did it was, and I realized, <laughs> I realized they're absolutely right that that's the reason I did it, but that that character or that situation was so internalized to me that I just did it. Right. Okay. It was the inevitable thing for me to do. And I, I, in, um, in the, the book, uh, the honor book in which the Iwata strike wipes out 90% of her family, I tried to write that book. I tried to write that chapter in which um, uh, Jamie LaFollette, her, her, Andrew LaFollette, her, her, her longtime beloved armsman, dies. I tried to rewrite that chapter like 10 times without killing him because of how much I liked the character. Right. And I couldn't do it. And it wasn't until I'd handed the manuscript in that I realized that the reason I couldn't do that, the reason Andrew had to die, is that Honor loses 90% of her family and you've never met them. You've met Andrew. You know how much she, he means to her. You know how it's just going to rip her heart out to find out that this guy who she's made the armsman for her infant son in part to keep him away from her because her armsmen keep dying 
has died saving her son's life. You know what that's going to do to her. And once you internalize that, you internalize every other death that she's suffered. And that's why the chapter had to end that way. But I didn't know that when I was writing it. I just knew that he couldn't, I couldn't make it work with him surviving. Chris, have you ever had to do that with a character that you had, you, you, really like this character and you don't want to do anything to it but oh he's got this this character has to die for the story to go forward was that directed to me yes that's it wow (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah uh absolutely um that at some point you know people that that you like have to die um one of the unfortunate things about writing military science fiction is in war people die and, and if you go too long and everybody's, you know, all hunky-dory, it, it just starts to feel false because you never, you know, nobody ever dies. Uh, oh, yeah, they lose all those red shirts, but nobody important. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, well, I, I know what's going to happen. And, well, and you know, when, when you know what's going to happen, it becomes less fun. Right. Well, there's more to it than that, too. And I think, Chris, I don't – I think we've discussed this and that, uh, and that you're – Anyway, you can't sanitize military science fiction. Military fiction, you have, I think, a moral obligation to not sanitize it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what what makes it great is it's not sanitized. Well, that's true, but there's another side of it too, which is that for the vast majority of your readers, they really, despite how much we worry about violence in this country and everything else, people have very little experience with violence in their personal spaces. The vast majority mm-hmm. of, of, of an American readership, for example, doesn't. True. So they form their judgments about what violence is and what it means and why people commit acts of violence vicariously through the news, through the movies they watch, through the books they read. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you have a character who walks to her boot tops through the blood of her enemies and her friends and isn't scarred by that, doesn't carry all those deaths around with her, then you're not what you're writing is splatter porn. Yep. If you write if you write military fiction in which only bad guys die, or if the good guys who die die instantly, always from a headshot. Um One of my dearest friends was Colonel Mack, Colonel Maxwell MacGregor MacMahon. Well, you can see why he was called Colonel Mack. Mm -hmm. He told me one time, he said, the second worst moment in any combat commander's life comes when the intel was good, the planning was good, all the rehearsals were good. You carried out the operation Everybody executed flawlessly, and a 19-year-old is bleeding out in your arms anyway, and you cannot put the life back into him no matter what you do. And I said, that's the second worst moment. He said, yep. He said, the worst moment comes when you realize that this is what you do better than anything else in the world, and you can't let somebody who doesn't do it as well do it. And there's a lot of that in Honor Harrington. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's true, but that's one of the things that you need to be able to communicate to your reader, partly because you have a moral obligation, but also because as Chris says, if you don't sooner or later, even if they don't have personal experience with the military, personal experience with violence, they'll detect that false note. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, detrimental to the story as well as dishonest. All right. Well, the new book, Into the Light, David Weber and Chris Kennedy. I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you guys go because we've gone an hour. You guys have been very gracious with your time, and we definitely want to do this again. Uh, David's uh, website, davidweber.net, and Chris has chriskennedypublishing.com. We will put links to these in our show notes and get up here to the top. And I got to say, I was looking at Twitter to see if you guys were on there and I see Chris and I don't twit. 
Dave, Dave, <laughs> I'm a big enough twit without well, Twitter. David <clears throat> says here that your account was suspended. It doesn't look. I don't think that's you, though. I don't think I got suspended <laughs> for anything I said since I didn't said anything. But on there's, Twitter but there's Chris. Like so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll Chris put, will be uh, suspended any day now. I'm sure, but <laughs> so yeah, his his will be for a sin of commission. <laughs> And, and we do I haven't have, done a lot with it here recently. I used to be on it all the time, but um, you know, then then I started publishing a book a week, and and a lot of my time to do other things like that has kind of gone away. And then, like I said, we've got uh, three articles that split out with my interview with David from oh so long ago. Twenty eleven <laughs> is when those went out. That's ten years, David. We we've got to we've got to do this. A little bit more frequently than every 10 years. Especially since I'm 69 now. I know, right? <laughs> well, I just turned 51, so I'm I'm getting up there as well. Infant, so, infant. Uh, so, yeah. so far, so far. But I've been doing this for 32 years now, so I'm kind of starting to feel it a little bit. In the chat, we've got Eastland. We've got uh, Joachim. Uh, both of you, thank you for being here. Uh, Eastland mentions the A-team. It's kind of like what you were talking about, David, where, you know, if you go back and you look at the A-team, None of the bad guys died. Yeah. And it's that unreality that yeah. kind of factors into that and well, starts to that, damage the credibility of it. That yeah. combined with all the bullets hitting the vans and never leaving any holes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I've spent too much time with firearms. I know how that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. They now did, they didn't have enough budget to shoot them up. That's what it was. When does it say into the light is out now or is it about to come out? It's out. It's out. out. Okay. All right. So uh, hopefully we can get a review copy and we can do uh, we can do a review of the book. I really enjoyed the first one, so I'm looking forward to uh, that second one. There, there, I think that there's a lot of the same same flavor, but I think it that the second one also goes places the first one didn't couldn't given the the scope, Mm -hmm. Um, and we have not set uh, a an end point yet uh, on the on the series. We don't have a planned story arc that this is where it ends. Uh, so there should be several. <laughs> All right. Before we're done. <laughs> well, we are looking forward to that. The book is called Into the Light. Uh, David Weber and Chris Kennedy, thanks very much for your time. And also thank all of you to, uh, to, uh, to, for being here and uh, being in the chat and, and sharing the links and such. And if you are not subscribed to the channel yet, we do invite you to do that. Have your notifications turned on. And don't forget to check out our Twitch channel. We've just reactivated that. We're currently sitting at 80 followers. We need to get that up so we can start our watch parties for those of you who have Amazon Prime accounts. So in the meantime, uh, new H2O tonight. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to be talking about yet, but it's coming. Uh, And uh, we do invite you to check that out tonight at 9 Eastern, 8 Central. And in the meantime, we will be back to do this again tomorrow. Joseph Malazzi will be here, the producer and a writer on the Stargate series. And uh, that's it for us today. Thanks very much for watching, folks. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.